everyone, welcome to the 116th edition of DF Direct Weekly. This is indeed our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and technology news. And for this one, we're coming off the back of several DF Direct specials we did for the summer season of game reveals. Uh, lots of amazing stuff. And I must first congratulate the two people who did all the talking. <laughs> And we'll start by saying thank you to Alex Batalia. <laughs> thank you, Rich. Thank you, Oliver, for being such a champ in editing all that. Uh, doing an incredible job actually getting all the stuff that we mentioned on there. I mean, we gave him notes, but that's not easy to do. Um, so congrats, Oliver. Uh, yes, you're talking about other things today, hopefully. Maybe positive, yeah, maybe mm -hmm. negative. We'll Absolutely. And, uh, of course, John Linneman. Rich, yes. This week was... a. Uh, a masterclass in teamwork, I think. We all came together and delivered a lot of stuff, and people seemed genuinely happy with uh, what we had to say. Mostly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> we'll get onto that later. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to the first news topic then. Okay, so uh, as is his want, Phil Spencer conducted a couple of interviews after the Xbox Games Showcase, and uh, there were a few sort of nuggets of new information that came out. Obviously, within the event, we had the announcement of a $350 one terabyte Xbox Series S. And, you know, the logical question is, you know, what's happening with pro consoles? Are they going to be happening this generation? And um, essentially, we've got a quote here from... Uh, uh, one of those interviews. This one seemed to be from uh, uh, Bloomberg. Uh, Phil saying, in terms of uh, pro console, he doesn't feel an imperative to do one. And uh, that's not the feedback we're getting right now. Right now, we're pretty set on the hardware we have. And this is in the context of um, leaks um, from uh, Insider Gaming, I believe, that are talking about, first of all, a PS5 console revision with a detachable optical drive. And um, the I believe they also leaked the, uh, or reported on a leak, of the Q handheld. The Q handheld has come to pass. So it's curious to see whether we're going to have a situation where we'll have um, Sony producing a pro console or Microsoft. Uh, potentially not. Um, John, what do you make of this? I mean, we're kind of on the record as saying that we don't need pro consoles, right? Yep. And I still agree <laughs> with that notion. I, I think that's not, that's not the play right now. Uh, it took a long time to get to the point where you can walk into a store and buy these machines. And even then, it still can be a little bit sketchy in terms of whether you get one. Uh, it feels like the generation's really still just beginning. The cross-gen period is finally on its way out. Uh, it just kind of feels like those just finally able to get their consoles. They don't want to necessarily hear like, Hey, it's time to upgrade to the new machine. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially when, you know, you have stuff like the PS five with eight K written on the box and we still haven't <laughs> seen that. And it's just, it just feels like it would be uh, closing the door on these machines too quickly. And so, uh -huh. you know, I think also Microsoft told us this back when we saw the series X for the first time that, the Series X is their mid-gen refresh. They just decided to do it, like, ahead of time, I guess you could say. The Series S is what they consider, like, the standard machine. And then yeah. Series X is, like, you know, that's getting ahead of the cart there. And this is what you might get from a mid-gen console. And I think, you know, even with all the talk around Starfield and 30 FPS, I don't really think that's necessarily a limitation in the machine. That's just Bethesda doing Bethesda things. That's uh, a great box and we're still waiting for it to get truly fully utilized by developers and come into its own mm, to clarify the um the, the, the s and x thing 
obviously last generation we had an S and an X console, and I think they just transplanted that across to the current generation. So you know the the Series S is the equivalent of the One S from the last right. generation, and uh, Series X is the equivalent of the One X. It's just you're getting both of them at the same time. At exactly. Launch. Exactly. Um, yeah. So and obviously there was. Um, quite a long discussion we had about the problems of creating a new console that's meaningfully different from the current one, given price constraints. Mm -hmm. um, Alex, your thoughts on this one? Um, I'm with Phil Spencer here. I, I, Other than from like the weirdly hardcore who wants, I don't know, I don't know exactly what they want, but they want new pro consoles for some reason. I think we still have yet <laughs> to tap into what is going on with this gen. We still barely have seen any UE5 releases, like which is supposed to be the generation's engine at this point in time. Um, you know, I saw the other day that, you know, with each and every generation come to pass, they get longer. Um, you know, you had your 360, your PS3 gen, then the last generation. And I imagine this one is just going to be the longest one yet. Um I don't see why it would change. I mean, with development, it does get longer and harder. Yeah. So the thing is, we just need actually a stable base to be formed first before we start talking about changing anything. And this goes, I don't even have to talk about the fact that I think the upgrade path in the console space based upon the hardware that AMD has on offer yet is not compelling enough uh, from my perspective to make an upgrade in any sense that word really worth it. Uh, without just complicating the development environment so much so. So I'm not happy if there's actually a PS5 Pro, to be honest with you. You're not happy? I wouldn't be very happy with it. I want them to make the most out of PS5 and then see what happens there instead of already making PS5 the, oh, you get like a 30 FPS experience machine and we can't fit everything we want on it because we put everything we want on it and the PS5 Pro. I don't want to see that thing happening and, you know, I want to I want to see them first do as much as they can with the PS5. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Mm. Um, well, I've got some thoughts on this, and um, I agree with you to, uh, primarily, <laughs> which is that in a world where we haven't really seen the current cons uh, consoles uh, fully utilised, um, owing to the kind of uh, legacy of cross-generation hardware, kind of makes sense not to do one immediately. However, if, as you say, Alex, the console generation is much longer than previous, mm -hmm. there may well be a small percentage of users who would actually want a more performant machine. And the question is how much more performance you can get. Now, you're not going to be doubling the size of the GPU and producing a cost-efficient uh, box, right? No. Um, so what could you do? Uh, that's an interesting question. Maybe we should break that out into a different video. But just off the top of my head, um, you could have machine learning blocks for better upscaling. Uh, the current generation of uh, Zen CPUs are much better than Zen 2. And mm -hmm. um, that's been a problem for... Uh, I was actually quite interested to see that it seems to be CPU that is a primary limiting factor of um, the, the, the sort of latest wave of games. Yep. So mm -hmm. I do think there is maybe an argument for a machine that would be aimed at an, what you might call uh, the most discerning audience. Now, a bit of other feedback to give you is... Um, whether you can actually call it feedback or stuff, but essentially... Last generation, the split between the pro consoles and the base consoles was 80% in favor of the base console. So, you know, there's not going to be a huge commercial imperative to do a pro console when it's addressing a minority of the audience. Mm -hmm. But maybe that minority would pay 
you know, a couple of hundred extra dollars, you know, that would pay a stupid mm. amount, what we would consider a stupid amount for a console in order to get a premium experience. So I'm kind of curious as to see whether this is going to happen on the Sony side, because I think from what I'm, what I'm, what the, the you know, what Phil is saying here is that, um, it's not going to happen from Microsoft. This is as close to him ruling it out as we're going to get. Yeah. Um, I am find, finding it quite interesting, the wording that's that's being used here. That's not the feedback we're getting right now. Could change now, the future. This is, is, well, possibly, but more to the point is that it takes a long time. It takes like four years to make yeah, a console. Yeah, yeah. So you can't really use feedback in the here and now to... Uh, to have an influence on the planning stages of the console, which would have happened years ago. That's the other thing to bear in mind there. So I think maybe the feedback he's talking about is the sales split of the last generation pro versus base consoles, where, you know, you've got to take a view on, you know, if those 20% of people aren't really interested in, aren't happy with current base console performance, Microsoft have got that covered. You can go and buy a PC, right? You know, all right, that's true. Yeah, that's the sort of solution. I think we're getting we're getting to an interesting point though, where I think they might be able to start to justify this as like cell phone like upgrades, because this was supposed to be a new generation, and frankly, it just feels like a continuation (laughs) of the last generation. Yes, that is it. The the complete sort of um, you know jettisoning of the console generation. That's that's the kind of alternative scenario. And some might say we've already had it because it's taken us three years to get rid of the last gen. And I don't think this is something we can solely place on the onus of the console manufacturer. I think that we're actually bumping up against limitations of development studios, like the manpower yeah. necessary to make modern games. Development cycles are so long now. And it just requires so much effort and work to get the fidelity people want that I don't think it's feasible to go that far beyond and so many projects to the point where you could say, oh, this is totally next gen and totally different from what we had before. Mm -hmm. It's all just building on what we already have. And, you know, if you've had a game that's been in development for three years already, and then you come out two years into a new cycle, it's like you weren't necessarily able to target that super ultra high end thing anyway. And I don't know. It does kind of feel like the end of generations is here and it's due mainly to just, you know, it's the state of hardware and the development of games. It's it's just changed too much. Yeah. Interesting uh, perspective here from supporter Roach. IDF with Phil Spencer hinting there likely won't be a mid-gen pro console for Xbox. Do you think that's because the next Xbox will just be a series uh, successor anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. quite, uh, quite possible. It's a possibility. Or possibly is it because Moore's Law is slowing down and therefore they can't develop a console with a meaningful boost <clears> in performance <throat> at the midpoint? I think... Um, this is something which was actually brought up at our uh, visit to Microsoft back in the day. They seem to be saying Moore's law is fine, but the cost of these reductions um, in, in fabrication nodes is is proving too much to create a cost-effective console. Um, technically, I think they've gone in the right direction with console design by having a desktop CPU in there, just like the PS5. So they've basically produced a small form factor PC that now just needs better performing components, which will not surprisingly... <laughs> which will not surprisingly remain compatible with previous gen games, just like a PC. So, yeah, I mean, he's basically putting forward the idea that you are, John, that essentially we're moving into a more iterative phase of console design. But, you know, I think there's there's ways you could disrupt that. You know, for example, switch to NVIDIA. That's yeah. That would do things. I also think comp- yeah. the thing about the, the CPU stuff, right, 
we are seeing games are more CPU limited, but if we look at the way they're CPU limited on PC, it really suggests there's a lot of inefficiency there. <laughs> like yeah. what was achieved on last generation Jaguar CPUs is insane when you consider how underpowered those are. But the Zen 2 CPU in these machines is not bad, right? It, it's I think it's perfectly suitable for these consoles. And what we're seeing instead is just like a lot of like uh, inefficiencies in, in the games and the engines, especially on the Unreal side. I mean, and that's, again, the PC reveals all. We can look at the core spread. We can see how the utilization scales. And you can definitely tell that these things are perhaps not scaling as well as they should. Yeah. And so, yeah, we are CPU limited, but I feel like we shouldn't necessarily have to be. Yeah. I agree with that, John. Like, I'm just thinking there's, there is actually a famous quote about this about hard. Usually you would imagine hardware, uh, making what we already have so much faster, but you can boot up, for example, like a modern browser or a modern text, uh, input program and see how much more bloated it is in terms of processing power and speed versus a text processor that was in the late eighties, which has honestly similar functions for a lot of things. So. You see more hardware there on the table with Zen 2 processors in modern consoles, but they're kind of also used partially as a crutch to ease development so you don't spend as much time crunching to get ultra-fast performance. You just use it to get acceptable performance. Um, and that isn't that great from a, from a perspective of, well, you're leaving a lot on the table. It's pretty inefficient. Uh, it's also not great for the consumer necessarily because like we see with Gotham Knights, which I think is a prime example of this, especially at launch, where <laughs> that game really looks like it should be 60 FPS. Um, and then if you examine the way it looks on PC and the way it performs on PC, you see it's leaving a lot of performance on the table on the CPU side of things. So yeah, I agree with John there. And it's a little bit sad that it is the case we see here. Um, in terms of what they would bring to the table, even if they brought out a new P, uh, brought out a new box, like Rich was getting at earlier, I do think the machine learning uh, idea of a mid-gen refresh is the most compelling out of all of them. Like Rich has uh, floated it before in conversation. It's Xbox One S-like, where that console eh, it was a little bit tweaked, a little bit better in some areas. It had um, HDR support. Has VRR support? Am I wrong there? Um, it, it does, does. yeah. And so it's something like that that would add a little bit of spice to help the generation going and maybe something new, a little bit more daring. Maybe there's a machine learning block on the GPU now so developers can tap into that to get better upscaling as the generation goes on and it gets longer in the tooth. That's something I would actually, I would vastly prefer and uh, uh, to just doubling and butterflying the GPU like last time with the PS4 Pro and keeping a semi-mediocre CPU in there and a similar amount of, v of VRAM available video memory, I mean, uh, I thought that was pretty boring in comparison to other things they could have done. Yeah, yeah and yet mm. it sold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing. Uh, I've got a question here from who the hell am I? As previously discussed, Microsoft announced a one terabyte Series S. I'm curious to hear Rich's thoughts on it. Does it mirror what Oliver, John, and Alex said? And also, how would you guys feel if instead of a one terabyte Series S, Microsoft announced a $400 digital-only no. Series X God. a la PS5 <laughs> digital? Uh, yeah, a couple of points on that. But one terabyte Series S, the thing that surprised me, and it was what John said in the uh, Microsoft Direct, is $349. The price point doesn't make sense, right? Uh, we're, we're kind of now three 
years into the cycle of the consoles, where typically you would be looking at cost reductions of the consoles, but we're not seeing them. We are seeing like bundle deals and stuff like that, but fundamentally, uh, the MSRPs of the consoles are, are not really shifting. Haven't they gone? Didn't they go up? Mm-hmm. They they did uh, at one point, yeah. And are they back down to the original? I don't know about that. I'm. It never changed in the US. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. But it did yeah. change elsewhere. Yeah. It did change elsewhere, yeah. Um, I just think that the 349 price point is kind of saying to me that they can't reduce the prices, mm-hmm. which again puts further pressure on a, the concept of a pro console. The fact that they can't do it three years in is kind of um, I'm kind of concerned. Shocked by that, man! Like a two ninety nine one terabyte Series S would have been such a big win for them. Especially yeah, they're I like, think- yeah, Starfield's coming. Get this box two ninety nine. Got more storage. You know, just. I, I don't. I'm surprised. I think it. what's we need to wait and see what's going to happen at Black Friday because we did actually see Series S deals. That's true. This new Series S is black as well, so I mean, <laughs> double deals, double up on that black. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah. Mm, I think the one thing that's going to be interesting to see is if there is a PS5 Pro and there isn't an Xbox Pro. I'm going to be really interested to see, first of all, how the perception Ooh, of that plays out. And secondly, you know, just how much more meaningful a, a PS5 Pro would actually be. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of um, uh, who the hell am I's question about a $400 <laughs> digital-only Series X, um, Series X was a very expensive machine to make. It's I still think it's probably more expensive to make than the PlayStation 5 because, you know, they've got some pretty extreme cooling in there. Yeah, they do. They've got um, a much bigger die, a much bigger chip. They've got more memory modules. So, you know, the concept of being able to produce a cost-reduced version when there's only one component that's changing, the optical drive, I think that was challenging enough for Sony to do, and I think it's even more challenging for Microsoft to do. Uh, so it's possibly one of these things where um as users we might there is a portion of the audience not including john that might have liked to see it mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the other thing of course is that that unit would put even more pressure on the 299 dollar series s it's just never going to happen yeah um i don't really know what more to add to that it's all going to count on it's all going to sort of come down to how these consoles will reduce in in cost in form yeah. factor over the next year or so i mean the 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 trouble point i could see for xbox and i don't know if this would happen would be like sony comes out like they did with the ps4 pro you had a ps5 pro at 4.99 and then you have the regular ps5 down to 3.99 and maybe it's like a slim model right like new slim ps5 3.99 slim or you know redesigned ps5 pro and then now you have like the full fat PS5 experience at 399. And that's, uh, well, I don't know possibly. if they could even make that happen, but that, well, that could there be... is the detachable optical drive rumor yeah, that's going on. That's, a, again, that's I... a bad rumor. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to happen, John. I've dude, got... that's such, mm, that's, that's going to kill I think it's... so bad, dude. <laughs> well, I think it actually also means that at least if you have got one of those base units without an optical drive, you can actually get one. Uh, I mean, that's yeah, a, that's but the main like, issue I've got with Series S at the moment, right? Um, and it's yeah. something I'd really like to ask Phil about, which is he's really, I mean, he's really into the concept of a library that you take with you through the generations, right? But if you were an Xbox One S owner who bought physical discs, 
you can't take your games through to the next generation because the Series S is a digital-only device. Yeah. So the, the, the detachable optical drive system would actually at least make that happen, right? I mean, if it if it were to become part of like a slim base unit, and then, like, say the conceivable Pro, the PS5 Pro was like always with the disc unit, then that would be all right. Mm-hmm. But if it becomes fully optional, I think that would kill disc media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's still, you know, the fact that 50% of games are still sold physical, they can't turn their back on that. I don't think they should. It's, I mean, you that and having that retail presence, it may not seem like a big deal, but I think it does matter in terms of like mindshare. Like Nintendo especially dominates retail stores. You walk into the game section, you're going to see a sea of red switch cases everywhere. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. just switch stuff all over. People see that and they think about it. For children. I think that yeah. I think it matters. For, yeah. For children, market audiences going into a store and actually seeing the physical things that you can touch and maybe even play a demo of, uh, it's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think that's all we really got to say about that at the moment. And I do think at this point, with this announcement, the ball is kind of in Sony's court. Is this happening or is it not happening? Um, we'll just have to wait and see, right? Uh, with that, let's move on to the next news topic. And it is kind of related to uh, what we just discussed because uh, we now have an announcement from um, Xbox Studio head Matt, Matt Booty that Microsoft has effectively phased out development for the Xbox One generation of consoles uh, for first-party development. There's going to be no new Xbox One support. Back in the day, John, this is something that you you wanted to happen, (laughs) you know, a couple of years earlier than what has actually happened. How do you think that has actually played out? And how do you think it's going to play out in future? This is the certainly the right decision in in the here and now. Do you think it should have been done sooner? Mm, at the time, I I wanted it to have been done sooner, but that was a naive view of what the status of development is these days. And just, uh, I you know, what I want doesn't really matter in terms of what's realistic for these companies. And I think, unfortunately, the cross-gen period was kind of necessary. Like, I don't think that studios are ready to jump on board with these new machines right away. I think the cost of development is so high on modern games that limiting your audience like that during the early parts of a generation is like potentially ruinous, right? Mm. Do you th- do you think it limited ambition though? Um, I, I think this is quite an interesting question because looking at Microsoft specifically, you have two really interesting, interesting examples of cross-gen development. Forza Horizon 5, where I honestly think the game that was delivered at that time on Series S and X was a proper generational leap in terms of fidelity. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, 1X and uh, 1S owners got a really good game. So I think that's kind of like a validation of the cross-generation strategy. Uh, but then you look at Halo Infinite, on the other hand, which I don't, I, I think is kind of like, uh, an example of how your original point may have been borne out that the new generation of consoles were being disadvantaged. Where well, you sit on that? the thing is, is I'm not sure that most developers are dabbling in concepts that are outside the realm of possibility for these older machines. Like something like Ratchet and Clank, for instance, is an example of a game that probably could only be on PS5 with the way they designed it. I, what I mean, I only obviously it's coming to PC and it could work on Series X as well if they wanted. What I mean is like it wouldn't work on a PS5 without altering the game design. So that's an example of one of those types of experiences that was designed for a new machine. But not everybody 
needs or wants to implement stuff like that, right? Like most game concepts are extremely scalable these days. And there's very little that you could do that would you could truly say is impossible on one of those older boxes. That used to be the case where things were impossible, but I don't think that's the case anymore with most types of games, right? Yeah. And I mean, like they you mentioned Forza Horizon 5. They just showed off Forza Motorsport again, and it looks like Forza Motorsport. There's nothing about it that says, oh, this couldn't have been done on Xbox One, especially compared to Forza Horizon 5, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if Horizon 5 could work on there, I'm positive the new Motorsport could as well. They just shifted away from it, and that's because that's what the game is, right? They're not doing anything mind-bending here that would necessarily push beyond the capabilities of these older machines. Graphics are quite scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well we, uh, I don't know about that, John. We've got to wait and see a bit more on Forza Motorsport That's true. to see That's what, true. what they're actually doing. I mean, you don't see what's happening with the simulation, for example. Yeah, uh, but do you think it's so far beyond what's realistic? I mean, we'll have to test. Who can say? Yeah, we'll have to see when it comes out. But I think, like, when I think about designs that cannot stretch across the generations, I think about, oh, our base design of like, I always, sorry, I'm just going to bring up Star Citizen here because like, oh, our ships are actual physical entities with like different components in them. And you crew them in like a multiplayer environment with each person taking a different role. And like, you can blow up the ship and has like soft death and all these things. And I just think, oh, that's a lot of CPU power to do this very basic thing. And then you have all these, then you can have like a bunch of people have all their ships together in one area and your CPU needs to do that. That's like an area where I go, oh yeah, I can totally understand why this couldn't run on an Xbox One. But then I look at like a corridor shooter or uh, John was just saying like a track-based racing game. The simulation things that Rich was talking about, like you can always run them at half hertz or something like that or run the game at 30 FPS and all these other things. But it's a matter of, do we want to spend the time doing that? And is it worth our money and effort? And for some games, they just say, it's not worth our money and effort. And for other games, because Microsoft was saying that it needs to be worth our effort, they kind of pushed, I think Halo <laughs> Infinite was an example where they had a lot of time probably there trying to get it looking and running well enough on Xbox One that it might have been to the detriment of Series X uh, to a degree, uh, perhaps in terms of just like scope and vision of the game. We always have that well, example of co-op, probably spending right? a lot of uh, engineering time on that older version. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Instead of you know sprucing up the newer version in, in a way to make the game look more interesting. Uh, so that that's how I feel about this. I'm really happy that they announced this. A little bit late for me. I would have loved to have seen it happen sooner, especially since Microsoft is now pushing PC so so much more heavily, and they're announcing it day and date. Uh, Game Pass versions on PC and things like that. Uh, it would have been cool if it was a little bit earlier with that instead of now. So yeah, I, Alex, I, I, to Games Pass. Games Pass, yes. Oh, yeah, My bad. Pass. My bad. I love your example of Star Citizen though, because Star Citizen is definitely an example of super ambitious. But it was just sort of like a news story making rounds yesterday that <clears throat> Star Citizen has cost more to create thus far has than it, has Cyberpunk it 2077, GTA 5, and Red Dead 2 combined, they're saying? So the thing is, that's... How, how much... Sorry, sorry, I've got to cut in here. How much How much money has actually been spent versus how much money has been raised? Yeah, that's, that's a different th- These are two different uh, things. Yeah. So, like, like... I guess that's the... It's more like pr- production costs. Yeah, I mean, well, you would have to... <clears throat> 
CIG releases their <laughs> their things. Uh, how do you say it? Uh, their financials, uh, you can get a hold of them. You would have to look at all their expenditures per year and add that up. But that, but that story was all about the um, the amount of money raised, uh, which, which is actually, by the way, that's probably even lower than the actual amount of money raised for Star Citizen, yeah. because they also I, had I angel guess, backers at some point. I guess in their the, history, the so. point here, though, <laughs> is that like there's basically nobody else that can do what Star Citizen is doing. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is that that, that there's nothing. So Star Citizen's, I was using Star Citizen as, as an example of a base design system of a game that is no, CPU I know, complex. I know, I get it, I get you it. You could also imagine an indie title that has a, a CPU complex design, like a like a really intense real-time strategy game. I, I would say Teardown wouldn't really be feasible on those old Jaguar cores. Yeah, I would probably agree with you there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's great that we are actually now seeing the end of development for Xbox One because, well, I think for several years now, it's actually been really difficult to develop for that console simply because of uh, technical debt from limitations that were imposed just on the core design of the original VCR Xbox One, the whole ES RAM thing, the DD, DDR3 memory. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it literally is a relic from another age and it was underpowered at launch and the concept of having to support it in, as Alex puts it, the year 2023 <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is, is not great. Uh, sorry, Alex. I've got to come back to the games thing. <laughs> games, games, Gamescom. It's right. It's right. You don't have Gamecom. <laughs> We're not going to Gamecom in a couple of months. Are we? True. Yeah, Gamecom. There's, there's more than one game. This sounds like a like a like a unreleased console, the Gamecom, and it was never released because it was awful. The Gamecom that came <laughs> because out because it only had one game. game. Gamecom did come out, Alex. <laughs> I have one. Is it that good that I've heard of it? <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the Tiger Gamecom. Oh, that's what it is. It's that good. Okay, you're right. It's, it's that right. good. Dude, oh, my word. The, the one last thing regarding this, though, one of the elements that I would describe as tech debt is uh, the Xbox One VCR's reliance on 50 gigabyte disks. That influenced Microsoft's decision to ship all their disk-based games on 50 gigabyte disks. But we know that the newer machines can support 100 gigabyte disks, starting with yeah. Series S and Xbox One, sorry, with One S and One X even. So, yeah. like, would they potentially consider moving to the larger disks? I know they don't prioritize disk-based media anymore, but uh, I feel like that would be a smart move. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they can only be played on Series X, like, why not ship them on 100 gigabyte disks so you can put the whole game on there? That'd be nice. Or, you know, things like that, right? Because... One of the problems with this cross-gen period and one of the, the things that I, most irritated me is the whole smart delivery stuff. Not because it's a bad idea. It's good for digital games, but it was horrendous for physical because it meant that every cross, pretty much every one of those smart delivery games, not all, but a lot of them, you get the Xbox One the base Xbox One version on the disc, and that is it. <laughs> if you want to play the Series X version, you have to connect to the internet and download a different version. Uh, it just so it just means that the disc version is kind of like largely useless long term, and that you don't get the good version of the game. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, now that's going to have to change, but even then, games are increasing in size. So uh, let's get those hundred gigabyte discs in there, Microsoft. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to be pouring one out for the uh, Xbox One. Uh, Should we though? Like Xbox One was like the darkest time in Xbox history. Yeah, it, it it's really the was. it's the console that almost destroyed the Xbox brand. I would say they've spent like 
almost a decade now turning that around. Yeah. yeah. It was I bad. Mean, Phil, like, Phil, Phil himself has said that um, that was the generation, the most crucial generation to lose, and they lost it mm-hmm. yeah. uh, simply because of the digital libraries that are being built up now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, not great. Um, okay, I think that's all we've got to say about that one. Uh, let's move on to the next news topic. So we're going to be veering away from consoles for a little while now as we discuss uh, the continuing state of PC games development, uh, <laughs> exemplified in one title, yeah. The Last of Us Part 1, T-Loop 1. And uh, it's got a new patch, which was inevitable because Alex had just done a big video about the previous <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And um and uh yeah, uh, talk from Naughty Dog is that this is a pretty major major patch and uh, we're not going to be doing another video about it. But Alex has some tested it. We've got some metrics here and uh we need to figure out Alex what has actually improved here. Sure. And yeah, let's look at some numbers. So basically things that were left behind in the last patch uh, where that there was introduced shader compilation stutter, which was a huge no-no, bad, <laughs> bad, bad. Uh, and the game, while uh, improving in a number of core areas, uh, still was really, really heavy on the CPU. And the GPU is honestly scaling in a way that is just way out of step with other titles that we see. Uh, so now I have some numbers. Um, basically, I looked at the alleyway of mediocrity, as I called it in the initial video, <laughs> where it's an alleyway where you just stare at the wall and your <laughs> CPU is being pounded into oblivion and it's really low frame rates for just a completely mundane scene. Well. Compared to the original coverage, patch 1.05, which is one the one I covered in my last video, and the current patch 1.1.0, we see some nice uh, improvements of performance here, actually almost bigger than it was previously, as 100% base performance of that original coverage was about 100, you know, 110% performance, so 10% better performance, and now we're at around 30% better performance on average on the CPU in this one scene uh, in the current patch uh, compared to launch, which is stupendously better than it was at launch. Um, Looking at other scenes, another one is the opening running uh, through the streets with all the AI people there and the, it's basically, it's like like an extended controllable cutscene, but that was an area that was heavy on the CPU and it still is, of course, but it is now in comparison to the last patch, for example, running around almost 15% better on average, uh, which is enough to take the Ryzen 5 3600, for example, in this scene to just at times below 60 FPS. It's usually a little bit above, but it still drops in a couple of key areas to around 50 or so. Uh, but the frame times, if you look at the frame time graph, while this is all going on, it is a bit more stable. It's not completely stable, so one thing that uh, is not really super fixed on at least this CPU is you can still go into new areas and you can still see some f- performance drops like we saw before, but it is lessened in comparison. Okay. Uh, uh, another thing is uh, shader compilation stutter. I don't really need to show footage for this, but it just doesn't happen in the same place as it did in the last patch. And this is with a fresh shader install and all these things. Uh, so it seems like they fixed that error that cropped up between the patches. And a last thing to talk about is that the GPU performance is just more or less the exact same. Uh, so it is right. straddling right there to uh, being a little bit better than launch, but not being much better at all, actually. It's it's almost okay. to the point of not being uh, like noticeable on a frame time graph or anything. 
so there was an interesting uh, Twitter post from one of the Naughty Dog staffers about how shaders that just worked on PlayStation 5 weren't working on PC. Uh, is that something you noticed? Um, Has it been fixed? Uh, I did. I did, Anita, after this, I did not go and look for one of the key examples was the fact that like a lot of the decal sorting was wrong in some areas like that. John mm-hmm. pointed it out in our original video. Yeah, we I, saw that in the original. I need yeah. to take a look and see if that is actually fixed. I'll have to load it up again. Uh, I did not look to see if any of the visual errors were fixed up, like missing lights and stuff like that. I honestly didn't look. But honestly, that's not surprising that certain shaders don't work across platform. Uh, usually they don't. Yeah. You need to make <laughs> yep. version specific. That's what, that's what a port is. So, uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> do, do you think the game is in a recommendable state uh, as of this patch? Yeah, it is for people with um, uh, well-off CPUs. I'd say you'd probably want still... You st- I honestly still think for the best experience you'd want Ryzen uh, of the what Zen three uh, generation. So so Ryzen five Ryzen five thousand. Uh, yeah, twelfth gen core. Uh, probably eleventh gen core would be okay. I'd imagine now, um, based upon the performance uplift here, since that is better than Zen two. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say that's what you'd want. And then GPU wise, I still, it's a lot better, obviously, than it was at launch in terms of memory consumption. But I still think you'd want something like for a really good experience at 1080p or at 1440p, you'd want something like a, like a 2080, 2080 super all the way up to like a 3070. Wow. Uh, just because there's areas in the game that have pretty heavy dips on the GPU. Uh, still, okay. yeah, that's that's really wow. all I have to say about that. I mean, I, I would really wish the game launched like this. It's 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 a lot yeah. better than it, it was at launch in so many areas, and they kind of like shot themselves in the foot launching it in the way it was because it killed a lot of the game's momentum, most likely, and uh, definitely killed a lot of reputation. Like you have to yep. you have to actively search on the internet to see if it's good and if you should buy it. Versus at launch, you actively heard everywhere on the internet that you shouldn't buy it. So yeah, big mistake. So yeah, this is a, yeah. a from a media perspective, this and indeed a reputational perspective, this is actually extremely damaging. And mm-hmm. we've really got to ask developers and publishers to give pause before they put out code that they knowingly is not great. Because in terms of our coverage of The Last of Us Part One, um, the most views <laughs> aren't for the video that says actually it's pretty good now. It's for the vid- it's for the video that says it's a disaster, which it kind of was at launch, and because of the way the YouTube algorithm works, because that video is, you know, did monster traffic. It's the one that's going to get recommended, not the yep. follow up, which <laughs> says actually it's not too bad. And similarly, in terms of um, customer sentiment, you know, the perception that it's not a good game, that it's not a good port, is going to be I- entrenched. And you've got to work really hard to actually, you know, change opinions. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. is why we're doing some of these videos, even though it is almost, you know, screaming into the void gale force (laughs) wind of established sentiment. Um, It's why we're doing these videos to say, you know, whether the game has been fixed or not. You know, is it really good? We've done it with uh, T-Loop 1. We've done it with Gotham Knights. We've done it with a bunch of titles at this point. But... We shouldn't be in this position, mm-hmm. you know. 
technical QA. Let's get it. Let's get it on the on the radar here. Please. It's a completely different type of QA to the usual QA, which is like bug fixes, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. This is about basics. You know, this is about basic performance, quality of life experiences, that kind of thing. And user experience. Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any anything to add to this, John? Because you've been kind of like oh. a, an observer of this. Uh, this situation playing out. I'm curious so, as to what your opinion is. I don't have much to say on this other than I suspect it won't happen again with whatever they release a Naughty Dog product because this was too much of a black eye for them as a studio known for uh, technical perfection almost, right? Mm-hmm. So to have a release like this associated with them, that's not good. They don't want this. So I suspect that it will not happen again. Another point I want to stress is that... Um, there's quite a lot of discussion about, oh, we can't test the game across the entire range of PC hardware out there. It's infinite, right? Uh, but the point is, Alex is testing it on two or three different PCs yeah, yeah. with strategically chosen components that will, in theory, uh, first of all, um, replicate the sort of PCs that are out there generally. And secondly, um, foundational issues within any given PC game will manifest to varying degrees across any specification of hardware. So you don't need to actually test across 600 PCs to no, isolate these right. core My issues. Gosh, no, right. certainly not. <laughs> so, um, Although it's great that they did. <laughs> As a sidestep to this game, I do want to highlight something here. <clears throat> Earlier this week, Alex and I streamed Layers of Fear with the developer, with two developers that worked on the game, right? And it's an Unreal Engine 5 game that just released yesterday. Uh, I haven't had a chance to test the PC ver- version myself, but PCGamesHardware.de did a significantly, uh, a very long article on it with a lot of performance testing. And in their finding, they're saying that there was no PSO stutter. The performance is really fast and uh, it has a very low VRAM footprint. Yeah. All of which I thought was interesting given that it's one of the first like third party UE5 games <laughs> and it does use uh, Lumen. Yeah. They did note that there's still some traversal stutter here and there. Yeah. As moving between the different maps, but it, I thought it, I wanted to mention this because it's, it's a, it's kind of a positive development for potential PC versions of UE5 games. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we'll have to see the like the thing I'm. So I think when a UE five point two title comes out, I think it's going to have for the most part n- not have any shader compilation stutters, uh, unless the dev really just completely ignores their their job. <laughs> just drop the ball. They, they just yeah, completely yeah. just go. I actually don't pay attention to what I'm doing, um, <laughs> uh, but I still think there's another a couple other hangups in the engine that still need to be resolved. Uh, like that's why that they mentioned there's still light traversal stutter in the uh, in the game, and I imagine for titles that have like less more uh, more open worlds instead of le- like a really constrained world, maybe we'll see it like the issues pop up more uh, to a greater intensity at that point in time. But I'm at least excited to hear that the first UE5 release, larger UE5 release, is not a is not a disaster. We also tested a Jusson. Yeah. Which was that uh, Don't Nod game that was revealed during one of the, the Summer Games Fest, I guess? Mm-hmm. Or was it Xbox Showcase? It was uh, of, I think it was Xbox Showcase, I think actually. it was Xbox Showcase, yeah. Yes. Uh, there's a PC. Is that, is that the climbing one, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the Xbox. Strand game. So that's yeah. uh, <laughs> it, that's, it has a PC demo, and I was playing with it. And my first impression wasn't great because I was trying to target 120 FPS, and I had G-Sync off for some reason. And so it was rather unstable, but I tested it again, capping at 60 
and the frame rate's fine, but you and I both noticed some issues with uh, weird pop-in on camera cuts where, like, large chunks of geometry would be missing for a few frames. Yeah. And sort of, like, pop into existence. Totally weird. So it's just, it's just an interesting time because we're finally seeing PC releases of Unreal Engine 5 games starting to arrive. They're, you know, maybe they're smaller in scope, although Jusant looks pretty big. Uh, but it's it's cool that we're finally getting our hands on these because it's something I think we've all been very worried about, right? Yeah, and I'll continue to be worried so, yeah, <laughs> until yeah, yeah, until I, I get my hands on like Immortals uh, Vavium, Vavium, Vavium or I get Vavium. my hands on Mortal Kombat 1. Yeah, apparently that is some sort of UE5 update of that engine there. I didn't realize that at, when they showed it off initially. Um, and I, uh, Well, I mean, maybe they're not using Lumen and Nanite, though. Yeah. So it's kind of like still... But still, yeah. they, they they were working with Unreal Engine 3, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, an enhanced version of that. So or I guess Star- Stalker 2. Um, that will be another interesting one. Although those devs, they're pretty PC-centric, so I hope they don't mess it up. So it's We'll see. It should be good. Should be good. I hope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, interesting chat, but let's move on to the next news topic. I'm actually looking at the next two news topics and they are interrelated. So I'm going to combine them into one. Um, basically, Sony uh-huh. has announced that there's going to be a streaming option for PlayStation 5 games on, um, uh, PlayStation Plus subscribing, uh, on, for subscribers of that service. Uh-huh. It's not just going to be games that are available, um, on the service, there's going to be games that maybe you've got them in your digital library and you'll be able to stream them. Uh, we've actually got a question here from Eric Benoit. I've beaten a couple of PS3 games on the Sony PlayStation Plus premium subscription, Bolt and Fon Evolution 2XS at my son's request. The oh. performance varied from okay to Lord strike me down. <laughs> Is PlayStation Plus premium a good indication of what Sony's future streaming projects will be like? And I think we could answer that question straight away with, I don't, we don't know, right? We don't know what stream solution they're using uh, are they just expanding putting ps5s into their existing data centers are they doing something a bit more ambitious we won't know until we go hands-on with it but the, i think the interesting thing will be to compare the local experience to remote play to the uh streaming experience to see uh what the quality hit is on various levels there and we'll go from there, right? Um, John, obviously, you're not particularly interested in uh, the PlayStation 5 streaming no. situation. Um, but mm. there was, well, I would say this week, hell froze over, pigs were flying. <laughs> uh, we were in danger of another extinction level event from a one, you know, one in a billion chance asteroid strike. <laughs> Because you played a a streaming platform and you were actually really impressed with the experience. So why don't you tell us more about that? Okay, so it actually started, I I recently reinstalled Windows 11 on my PC, right? And I was thinking, man, I feel like playing some Forza because I'm testing, you know, I have this OLED monitor on my desk and I want to play some Forza Horizon 5, as you do. But I was like, wait, it's not installed right now and this game is gigantic. So uh, rather than installing it, I thought, let me try... Let me try xCloud again. I'm, I'm now, I have a wired connection now. I, I ran the cables for it, you know, 150 megabytes download or 150 bits. megabits per second, yeah. I guess, download. Not the fastest in the world, but it should be knowing what the, the limits are on xCloud should be fine. Uh, the experience was horrible. 
Like it was, it was just, it <laughs> yeah. was even worse than I remember. It was so bad. The frame rate was, it was awful. It just felt like this jittery, ugly video. It felt like one of those low bit rate YouTube videos. Yeah. Uh, it, it was horrendous. Like I would consider that not playable. Uh, and I posted about that and I did see that some people were having slightly smoother experiences, which got me thinking about like your proximity to data centers and all that and how that impacts it, no matter what your connection is. But for me, at least X cloud is not usable. It's, it's garbage. And same with what I've tested on the PlayStation with their PS3 stuff. It's also bad, but then everybody was like, uh, have you tried GeForce now again lately? I tried GeForce now some years back. And I thought it was the best of that I had seen, but it was still not nearly what I would have considered good enough. But then I tried the new uh, 120 frames per second, 4080 tier of GeForce Now, and it is the literally the very first time ever <laughs> that I would say that a cloud experience was good. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong. I hate the business model potential of cloud. But as an optional service, like this like, latches onto your Steam library, basically, and other things like that, playing games that you already own, I I was impressed. <laughs> I, I admit it. I'm sorry. Well, you know, sorry, there is a certain degree of I told you so here, John, because I did an article about how GeForce know, now I was know. a game changer. I know. And you, you poo-pooed it. Poo-poo! on Twitter. I was still thinking about the way GeForce now was, and then, yeah, I, I didn't. So you were, you were right. It, <laughs> it felt responsive with a mouse. I, I loaded up System Shock that I've been playing anyway, and I was like, this, like, you can see some video compression. It's still not what I would want. But, like, I was playing on a 48-inch OLED, like, a, you right, know, a couple feet from eyes. the screen, right? Yeah. So you're going to see that. On a smaller screen, you probably wouldn't. But it was, like, smooth. It was 120 FPS, like, Frame delivery, again, not 100% perfect. You would occasionally get these little, like, frame time dips or spikes. But by and large, it was darn close to the real thing to the point where I'm like, okay, uh, like, if I was playing on a laptop next to me, like, I have this laptop here with a 120 hertz screen, mm -hmm. which means I could technically play higher end games on that if I wanted to, I suppose, using GeForce Now and... uh yeah, it's, it's like I said, this is the only time I've ever seen the cloud working super well. And that includes when I tried Stadia connected directly to Google Fiber in a Google demo, which was previously all right, but still not what I would consider great. This was actually good. Uh, again, it changes nothing about my feelings on cloud becoming the only option because it still kills ownership, preservation, mods, access to the games, long-term viability of games. There's so many reasons why cloud is bad. It's like the sole means of delivery. But what GeForce Now is doing is like an add-in service. And technically, xCloud offers the same kind of concept, but it just sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to sort of um, add a little bit of balance. Yeah. First of all, please, uh, I, please, have, I have played xCloud and, uh, recently, and it was, uh, well, I, I, I'll be generous. It was suboptimal, <laughs> but it, I didn't, I didn't have those uh, glitches that you were the having. Lurching. It was the lurching. No, yeah. it was, it was relatively consistent. Very few dropped frames. I've got one gigabit per second fiber, right? Yeah. So you'd expect just brute force to actually make it the best it could possibly be. And it was acceptable. However, the, the image quality was awful and the latency was still clearly perceptible to the point where 
um, it was annoying in a game like Forza Horizon 5, which was the title that I tested, mm -hmm. which is a great title for testing uh, streaming services, actually, because um, it, it's doing all the things that cloud services don't like. For example, oh, yeah. you want decent you want decent <laughs> response on you know the sort of granular control of the car. It's moving quickly, which isn't good for motion compression. It's very colourful, which is even worse for motion compression. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like your sort of um, uh, stress test scenario for that kind of uh, service. And uh, yeah, it wasn't great, but it was uh, marginally better. The thing I will John's say, experience. Uh, even with GeForce Now, though, I find that there's a, there's a real sensitivity to what's happening on your own home network. Like yeah. uh, when my son comes home and he hops on his PC, starts playing games, you know, watching videos, you know, stuff like that. It starts to interrupt the yeah the experience somewhat. Like it didn't ruin it, but it definitely gets worse. It's, but, and then if you're downloading something or doing anything else at all, basically, if you touch the internet in any way outside of playing the game, it seems Absolutely. to cause issues. And that's, yeah. nah. you know, that's, that isn't an issue for me though, because I've got gigabit. Yeah. You've got an insane, uh, insane connection but, now. But, you know, that's kind of like another sort of thing where I think it would probably be better over time as the infrastructure rollout continues and it becomes more of a norm. So, if, you know, I live in a, a village of like 300 homes and, um, we've, we've had, um, uh, fiber to the premises for a year now. And I'm actually seeing, because there's a little mounting plate on the front of the house, I can actually see who's actually taken up the offer. And it's it's slowly gathering pace there, even in my little village. See, But it's going to take time, obviously. We're finally getting fiber sometime in the next few months here. Wow. But we've been paying attention to the overall plan around our area. And it seems like if you, if you don't even, like... If you live within a halo ring of a city, <laughs> you might have good internet in Germany in the next couple of years. If you, st but like many others, if you live in any sort of village that's not directly next to one of these large city centers, uh, you're still rocking like 12 megabit ADSL or something. Yeah. Right. Like it's bad. So like there's a huge chunk of people here, even in, you know, in Germany for at least that won't have access to fast enough internet to make this yep. even viable. Absolutely, And it's the same in America as well, right? It's a gigantic country. There's a lot of people that live in places where they're not getting that. And I feel like the tech bro talk about streaming, it's all these people that live in these like tech capitals with the fastest internet. And they're like, yeah, dude, we can do everything online. And it's like, well, you go <laughs> most other places. You can't. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it will take time. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to be really interested to test the PlayStation 5 streaming just to see the scale of ambition there. If it is a bolt-on to the existing uh, services that they've got, in the way that they brought PlayStation 4 streaming online, uh, I'm not going to be particularly impressed by that. And it will be kind of like bundled in with xCloud. If they're doing something more ambitious, back in the day, there was a talk of a partnership with Microsoft. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure whether that's actually going ahead, bearing uh, in mind all of the animosity. Yeah, recent I was going to say with the CMA stuff. Yeah, with the CMA stuff. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. We'll just have to wait and see to see what they've got cooking there. I'm, I'm kind of um, interested to see what it is going to be, though and whether it will actually be a value add. Obviously, with the Q handheld as well, I suspect that's part of the equation. But let's find out. What about I, the, uh, I think Xbox Ones can use uh, xCloud? Yes, that's um, going back to Matt Booty's uh, proclamation that there's no further Xbox One development. You know, uh, he's saying that Xbox, Xbox One users can stream 
to gain access to the next generation. So that's games. what I was thinking. Like, you think Sony would do something similar? Like PS4 owners can stream PS5 stuff? Hmm. I'd love to see it because their whole strategy is based around moving people on from the old, old, old games. consoles. Yeah, yeah. They, so they probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> have to wait and see. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's the end of the news topics we've got this week. I'm going to plow on now straight into supporter Q&A. This is where every week we put up a call for questions on our Patreon. We get a bunch of amazing questions, mm -hmm. never enough time to uh, put all of them on the show. Maybe to the point where maybe we should do like a, a Q&A session or something, because there's still some great, great questions there. But anyway, I'm going to plow on into the first question. This one from Kipters. Hi, DF team, exclamation point. Obligatory Starfield 30 FPS question. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry. Since the VRR window on series is wide enough and Todd Howard stated that the game could run close to 60 FPS in some parts, do you think adding an option to unlock the frame rate when a VRR, window, when a VRR display is detected would alleviate people's concerns about this issue? You see, uh, I think that was not the best comment to make. <laughs> Because, um, you know, 60 FPS in some parts could be, as you said in the video, just like barren, featureless wasteland with nothing going on. Uh, it could be looking at the stars. Yeah. Um, you know, hitting 60 FPS in some points is in no way how it's been um, interpreted by some people, which is that, well, you know, if it's 60 in parts, maybe they should just let us have at it and see whether it's okay or not. Chances are, it's not going to be okay. Yeah. And that's why the 30 FPS cap is in there. Uh, Alex, thoughts? I'm, I'm so another thing that we, this is a video, VRR doesn't, is not a magic bullet, but what if the frame times, even unlocked, are not good? Like, what if it's uh, like going between, constantly between something like, 20 and 33 uh, milliseconds, like every couple frames. And it's not like a smooth, uh, gradation between each frame in terms of how many milliseconds it is because like let's just guess that certain world cpu updates uh happen uh you know every like 30 frames every 20 frames every 15 frames something like that and they cause a great spike in cpu utilization cpu usage for that one frame and then it bears out in the frame time but they cap it off at 33.3 milliseconds for with, with vsync to make it look fine and you don't notice it. But as soon as you uncap it, maybe you start seeing how actually really fragile that frame time is and how it is really spiky. And it may not actually even look good on a VRR display. So I wouldn't say it's a given, like Rich is saying, that even it may not even have to do with the fact that you look at the sky and it's 60 and you look at the ground and it's 30. It could actually be the frame times are not good unless you cap the game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. John, thoughts? I mean, that that's certainly true, and we don't know. We don't know the spec on that, right? But yeah. when you push, you know, when you remove a cap from a game's frame rate, it sort of reveals a lot of potential faults below the surface. And once you start bumping up against different bottlenecks that can affect those frame times in different ways, that could be undesirable. But uh, I, if if depending on how Starfield works, I still think it's a potentially viable option. Again, we don't know for sure what their frame times look like, but I would like that as a potential option because I think it 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 is effective on Xbox that full VRR range. Um, I mean, we've seen it. I think like if you play Elden Ring, for instance, at 120 hertz with VRR on, and you do the quality mode, which is pretty much like 30 to 40 FPS, uh, it it feels better than just capping at 30. Mm -hmm. I would mm -hmm. say. 
But at the same time, again, just one of the things about Xbox, I guess, and I, I don't know how it works in Plague Tale, but like, it seems like there's potentially difficulties with unlocking specific features unless you have a specific display output because everything's controlled on the system side, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, yeah. If you enable VRR, you're doing that at the Xbox OS level. But if you don't have VRR, I guess, does the game know the state of the system? Can the game, maybe it does, but can the game say, oh, you're using a VRR, the VRR setting is flagged, so now allow the user to uncap the frame rate. Whereas, if, well, yeah. Is that possible? Well, um, a Sobo Studio I have a heuristic algorithm that works out if VRR is active or not. Yeah. So it they is possible, have, but there's not, it's not like yeah. built into the system necessarily. It could be built into the okay. system. They could add a, another library call, which would tell exactly what Sony does, right? Mm. Which I, tells you whether VR is active or not. They just have elected I not think, to do it as far as we know. I think that would be the solution then. If this works, is to provide that option, but only for VR users, because it would look really bad, I think, without Well, the VR. thing is, we have no visibility whatsoever no, right. on performance. Uh, unlocked yeah. like it could be a it could be a disaster um in terms of frame times as alex says because when you hit cpu limits just a quick primer here <laughs> if you're gpu limited one frame is pretty much the same as the next so you get um a, a fairly uh, sort of consistent frame time right because yep. the, the computations are pretty similar from one frame to the next if you're cpu limited all bets are off because the CPU could be bottlenecked by any number of different systems at that point. Therefore, you get much more egregious stutter, mm-hmm. which basically does make the case for a cat frame rate much more s- strong. So we just don't know with Starfield how it would uh, operate if it was unlocked, right? Um, there's the question also of 40 FPS. Um, the, you know, if you want to support 40 FPS, there's the perception that it's only, you know, oh, we only need to do 10 more frames per second, but it's actually 8.3 milliseconds of, uh, computational time, which is huge amount for a game, uh, to, that's already sort of budgeted for 33 milliseconds to lose 8.3 milliseconds of, of frame time is nuts. The whole conversation around like, you know, 60 FPS though, this assumes that they'll even get to a solid 30. Right, yeah. If if they if this yes. game runs at 30 FPS and it's stable, it will be far and away the smoothest game Bethesda Game Studios has ever shipped on a console by a long shot, because their games don't run at a constant 30 when they when they were launched. Right, they never did, not even close. And the footage they've shown us, we don't know because the Starfield Direct footage was not smooth at all, but it's not clear if that was because there was a game problem or if it was their capture method. Or both, because some scenes did seem to run worse. So, yeah, like, or production, or a production mess up. Yeah, or production. Like, there's so many reasons, but I guess the concern right now is, can they actually even get to a stable thirty? Right, and I hope so. I, I feel like they might, given that this title's so important and Microsoft's pouring a lot of effort into ensuring that it's as polished as it can be. But still, there was some feedback to your video, which was saying. Um, is 60 FPS not possible because, uh, historically Bethesda game studios have not been, uh, had particularly strong on the technical side. And, uh, that is an interesting question, but you know, I guess my answer to that would be, well, take a look at the people who are producing some of the most technologically advanced 60 FPS games, right? The likes of id software. I'd also put infinity ward in there. 
Um, are they producing games like Starfield? No. You know, the, nope. the scale and scope of this project, I think the one takeaway I have from that Starfield Direct is that they're doing things that we've never seen before in a game <laughs> in terms of the sheer scale and scope of it. And allowances have got to be made for that. Your 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 Xbox Series X console, you know, isn't a supercomputer. It's a it's a console that was devised to to meet a price point. Yeah. It's not an RTX 4090. No. You know. No. It's not a Core i9-13900K where, you know, <laughs> these are niche products designed for relatively small audiences. These are like mass market devices. Something has got to give. That's all I've got to say about yep. that. Anything to add on Starfield and the reaction to the video? Apart from the fact that people seem to think that explaining why <laughs> there's a 30 FPS cap is actually a defense of a 30 FPS cap. I'll just right. I'll just briefly say this because um, when I covered Halo Infinite back when it was originally revealed, I was explaining why I thought the way it looked the way it looked. I wasn't saying, I can't wait to play Halo Infinite looking like this. Uh, when I <laughs> made a video explain, <laughs> explaining why people online were kind of complaining about the reflection quality in Spider-Man Remastered. I, I made a video explaining why ray tracing is so darn expensive. Uh, and then I'm, you know, with this video here explaining potentially as speculation why uh, Starfield could be limited to 30 FPS. It's not John and I going there saying it should be 30 FPS. It needs to be 30 FPS. I only right. play 30 FPS games, so... I mean, yeah, the Spider-Man thing as well. In my final video for the original release of that game, I, I kind of analyzed why it was the way it was and why the reflections changed, right? Mm -hmm. And Insomniac later, in one of their presentations, they actually directly mentioned that video. It's like, yeah, you were you were right about that. It was exactly that. <laughs> so it's like, that's the point. We're trying to theorize why things are the way they are and it's usually not just like oh this this hardware is not very good so it doesn't you know it's it's worse it's it's not that mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of crazy stuff okay let's move on to the next question this one from scott talberman and it's 30 fps again. oh yes i tried the final fantasy 16 demo in its 30 fps graphics mode and find it incredibly jarring to look at i'm if you're wondering why i sometimes choose questions that i know <laughs> will wind up the panel this is one of them yeah. uh incredibly jarring to look at particularly when panning the camera by contrast tears of the kingdom uh, runs at 30 fps looks totally fine on the same display hmm. is this my mind playing tricks on me or are there different factors that could make these two games look so different mm. when running at the same target frame rate but this is a perception question i i think john Correct. what do you think because you've played both on on um, the exact same on screen, the exact same screen yeah. so his mind is playing tricks on him Sort of. It is, as you say, it's a perception thing, but that doesn't mean there aren't differences. The main difference really is motion blur. Uh, personally, I love the motion blur in the Final Fantasy 16 demo. I think it looks excellent. The shutter speed is dialed in really well to give it that almost CG like quality in motion. But I understand not everybody likes the look of it. And it seems, and by virtue of not liking the look of it, tells me that different people perceive that effect differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And clearly it doesn't, whatever it is about the way the motion blur works, uh, it's, it's causing, uh, Scott Tobman here to see it in a different way, which is why, you know, I definitely, I, I think Final Fantasy 16 could use an option to turn off motion blur. I think it's heresy, but 
I, I think users should be provided with that option, Since, especially when the game really leans into motion blur like that game does. Uh, it's good to have options for people. So it seems to me that Scott just prefers the look of 30 FPS panning with zero motion blur versus motion blur. Sounds about that's, right. Okay. Yeah. That's basically Fair it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, let's move on to the next question. And again, some might say it was selected to troll oh. a particular <laughs> member of the panel. Uh, this one from Never Ready, Never Ready Eddie. Ooh. Alex, you mused last time that DX12 may have been a mistake, but looking back at your analysis of Shadow of the Tomb Raider and your interview of Nixis, you were excited about Aww. the future of DX12 and wowed by Nixis' implementation, which shows huge gains over DX11. Has that childlike excitement <laughs> for the possibilities of DX12 died? And do you miss that wide-eyed, optimistic version of Alex from 2019? Yes, I mean... Of course, you get older, you see more, you get wiser, <laughs> you get, uh, I don't know what the phrase is. Um, I'm grizzled now or something. You're, 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 you're grizzled. <laughs> you're grizzled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I have the riz? Um, okay. So I would say, yes, I, I do kind of miss getting excited over the future of API development in the PC space because. Uh, DDD 12, when it was originally like announced, like, I think it was like 2014, 2015 ish, uh, was an interesting time. Uh, and there was a lot of, uh, unknowns about the future, but they all seemed like they could have been positive. But like anything, uh, an API, a social security system, I don't know. There, there can be like little gotchas or things that build up over time and you don't, you don't, they weren't originally accounted for necessarily in the original design. And then they kind of mess everything up over time. And, you know, that's kind of what has happened with the 3D12 where developers back then were all like, yeah, we can totally write a driver. We can totally write a driver. And then they started making games and it turns out a lot of developers don't have the time, money, and or technical um, experience to maybe do that in the same way NVIDIA and AMD or Intel have. So that was the issue. That's how it's happened and come to be. And also, if you go back then, uh, I think in the interview, I do mention uh, at the time that it is a rarity, actually, at this point in time, currently, when I was interviewing Nixies, that D3D12 versions of games were actually better. We had seen a number of releases to that point of DirectX 12 games, including their own DirectX uh, Deus Ex Mankind, that didn't have uh, a more performant version of uh, DirectX 12 versus the DirectX 11 client. So it was a rarity at that time period, and it could technically still be a rarity now. We just don't have DX11 releases anymore for the most part to compare against. Most games don't allow you to turn off DirectX 12. Maybe there is no DirectX 11 renderer anymore. I would actually be very curious in those games that don't have ray tracing, whether they run better under DirectX 11 on NVIDIA than they do on DirectX 12. I would actually be pretty curious because it used to be the case all the time that the NVIDIA driver was just beating DirectX 12 implementations. So, mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, this question actually reminds me of a question we had way back in the day where people were suggesting that if a future Alex came back in time to tell us that the Switch <laughs> 2 was incredibly powerful, would we believe it? So I'm going to re rephrase that question. If if in 2019, wow. the Alex of 2023 came back and said, look, <laughs> 
this this DX12, it's it's going to turn into a bit of a disaster in a few years' time. W- would you believe? Oh him? my gosh, I don't know. Um, probably not. Actually, you sound like some sort of alarmist reactionary that we'd all have to kill because he's going to danger the timeline. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I wouldn't believe him. Wow. Any thoughts on this one, John? Uh, well, I mean. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess it just shows that it, in some ways, I always thought of DX12 as like this Microsoft base looking at everybody and saying, fine, fix it yourself. You know what I mean? After <laughs> years of DX11 complaints and like, yeah, we could do better. We could do better. Turns out not everybody can do better. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, that's, uh, but it's, this is really hard stuff, right? It's really hard stuff. And yeah, there's, I think there are tech minded people working in games that absolutely love all that extra control. They want to get into that nitty gritty. This is exactly what they wanted, but I don't think that applies to everyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. And I, I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. This one from, and I can't have any oh, no. inkling of how to pronounce this. Humpsey. 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 Good day, DF team. Greetings from Trinidad and Tobago. I joined Patreon specifically to ask this question. Given the team's issues with games running poorly on video cards without huge, large amounts of other or video memory, what are your thoughts about Apple's game porting kit in the context of the M series processors having a shared memory architecture, which can result in their GPU cores having access to up to 192 gigabytes of memory? What could this mean in a future where ARM and RISC-V processors catch up uh, to and exceed x86 performance. Wow. Um, well, we're talking about, Alex, we're talking about a completely different makeup of what a computer is that I don't think is probably going to happen on the PC space. Possibly x86 could be replaced by ARM, but yeah. you're still going to be having split pools of memory because, because you kind of have to. Yeah, you got to offer up more flexibility to the user of what they get. So that's like the PC platform... I don't think there's going to be an integration of these things because isn't like uh, the way it is done for uh, Mac, Apple, Silicon, because you have all these players in the market. You have memory makers, you have GPU makers, you have CPU makers. They're not all one controlling entity where they say, no, we're going to have it all be on an SSC and it's all one thing. And, um, and the, 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 person who's corralling them all is kind of Microsoft in this saying like what we are going to support all these things on our operating system and I don't think that is a thing that will happen on the PC space like Rich says and I think the more realistic thing is that ARM comes to PC in a big way uh, and there there's like a translation layer much like it is here for the game porting kit that allows ARM processors to run x86 stuff at a performance cost of course um, uh, so you get all that legacy content to a degree, as well as current content for both uh, x86 and that. This is interesting uh, question because you know it's really niche. <laughs> I don't think um, I don't think uh, the this the their ecosystem there is going to have any effect on game porting in the near term, next five years at all. Uh, especially since it is just a translation layer. Uh, it is not a, you're writing games for 192 gigabytes of memory. It's, you wrote <laughs> yes. a game for a PC and you just happen to have that 
uh, while you're yeah. running it. And the, the volume of Macs will have 16 gigs of yeah. memory anyway. Yeah, so. Right? The, you know, the MacBooks and whatnot. I've got one. Yeah. You know. That's all I have to okay. say there. <laughs> That's all you've got to say about that. I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting conceit. And I do think that there is a future for translation layers, right? Because um, uh, Proton, I think, has just been transformational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Very and, impressive. Um, you know, if we can see that sort of thing in the CPU space as well, I think that would be tremendous. Actually, you could conceivably have um, PC APUs made by NVIDIA. Yeah, that'd be cool. Point, which would, would be some tremendous competition in that space if that was the case. Mm -hmm. um, let's move on to the next question. This one from Parvel S. Hi, DF! Exclamation point. Love the show. I'm starting to worry more about FSR2 on image quality as more console games start to use it. Considering many games, for example, Star Wars Outlaws, while the game overall looks great, image quality during movement, for example, main character hair, looks terribly noisy and shimmery. Same foliage and many other elements. And contrary to PC, you probably can't turn this off. I'd really like to see PS5 Pro with the LSS support. I know it's unlikely. Thoughts? Wow. Uh, uh, I'll go to John with this one, actually, uh, first of all, because um, he's kind of right. You know, we are able to instantly see that the game is yeah. using FSR two owing to image quality artifacts. I get the feeling that it's being used too much as a crutch and going beyond what it was really designed to do, especially when dealing with lower frame rates. Uh it's it's not a magic bullet, basically. It sounds great on paper to be said that you can drop the pixel count say x amount and then you get this magic performance boost because it's supposedly targeting 4k but in reality it doesn't really seem to be the case and you might think how would they not notice that right but i go back to the dead space remake the re-release of that right earlier this year uh speaking with those guys they didn't notice the negative effects of using variable rate shading in that release like that it just kind of it it didn't occur as to them that it was a huge detriment to the visual quality. They just saw the performance gain side of it, right? I'm sure if they had looked more closely at it, somebody should have picked or would have picked up on it. But clearly, it didn't work for the image quality, especially on PS5, I would say, where the implementation was really bad. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they removed it. They They looked into it, they removed it, and suddenly, yeah, it completely fixed the problem. So they didn't even really need it there in the first place. So I'm wondering if in some cases they're just saying like, okay, we can, we can render this low of a pixel count and, and upscale up to this res. That's great. You know, that's free performance right there. And if you're not looking very closely at what that does to the image quality, it can seem like it's a magic, <laughs> a magic bullet yeah. when it, in reality it's not. I don't, does that make sense? I mean, it just, I feel like if you actually, uh, look at this thing like a subjective opinion where you put somebody in front of this and let them see it there's going to be people that should realize like this doesn't look very good anymore yeah right it's a tricky one because i'm going to presume that well fsr2 isn't the first upscaling solution right no there's many uh, so i'm going to assume that the technical director of the projects has actually done comparative analysis to see whether it's better for their projects than their existing solutions and then made the call as to whether it's there um yeah but yeah i don't know about I, this one because I, I don't think you could run star wars outlaws i think the, the the qualitative analysis would be maybe to use the pc version to compare fsr2 to native 
internal resolution and to see how that pans out. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think back to PS4 Pro, there was essentially a huge bunch of 1440p games, and then you had games that were running at 2160p checkerboard. And at some point, you know, maybe some of the developers did exactly that qualitative analysis comparison to see whether which one was best for their project. I kind of feel like some of those solutions that were pioneered during that era kind of look better than FSR2, though, (laughs) because... uh, I think that's maybe because the resolution is going so so low. But I think also the problem is, is when you look at FSR2, if if you just pick a scene and you stand still and you just compare the image across different solutions in a, when not in motion, FSR2 looks great, right? The problems arise once things really start to move. And I feel like that makes comparisons perhaps a little more difficult. Yeah. You know? Agreed with that, John. Uh, I will just say that, like, I think FSR2 was designed originally for PC uh, and it was designed at frame rates being around 60 or higher. Yeah. And it was not designed around um, 30 FPS, which is where we're seeing it here. Star Wars Outlaws, Jedi Survivors, you know, 30 FPS mode where where it kind of or even their 60 FPS mode where it goes really low res and it starts looking like not too awesome. Uh, and then you combine it with the fact that FSR2's motion handling is not. It's the thing that is whenever yep. you look at all my those those are that. They're a little out of date now because I was looking at older versions of FSR2, but that is the area where FSR2 fails the most is when mm-hmm. things start moving and or there's transparencies or whatever. That's when the issues start cropping up. So it depends on your game type. Like I think in Scorn, where the camera is not moving too much, it's first person, there's not a lot of stuff getting in the way, the game's pretty dark. FSR2 is going to look wonderful in that game. But then Diablo 4. Diablo 4, isometric sure. perspective. Yep. Things are entering the screen and they're not getting in the way of the screen all the time. It's very different. But as soon as you have like a third person character model, like mm, both Jedi these Survivor. games and a ton of, yeah, and a Good ton Lord. of vegetation, like an avatar, or I guess Jedi Survivor, I think in Avatar, it actually looked more egregious than it did in Jedi Survivor. Um, so interesting about that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's game content and this all requires, like John was saying, like subjective, hopefully comparative testing subjective testing and not just saying like oh we're getting a lot of frame time back by running this but also like are we actually making a good looking a pleasing image maybe a lower res one that is more stable could actually be better who knows and the motion side is so important because again like i said if you just compare still shots fsr2 is going to look great Mm -hmm. but once you start moving then you see the flaws and that's the problem yeah sure Okay. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. But I think the other thing to bear in mind is that FSR2 continues to improve. Um, yeah. So, you know. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. It's similar to DLSS in that regard. We're still seeing um, games with FSR1, though, and I'm just like... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jad. <laughs> um, I can only assume at that point they had a very low budget for upscaling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was factored into the design decision. Let's hope and pray. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to the final question of the show. This one from Joe Esposito. Greetings, gentlemen, exclamation point. If each of you had the power to alter one thing about game development that would be enforced across the industry, what would it be? This can be any aspect from management to marketing all the way down to a type of texture being used. (laughs) But for the sake of this thought experiment, 
assume there will be no negative impact to the developers themselves. Alex? Oh, I was going to say, don't do crunch. So they took that away from me by saying there's no negative. Yeah. So it wouldn't okay. be any of that uh, kind of a thing. I guess I would say um, ensure your game doesn't stutter <laughs> in any way, as in you have a clean frame time, regardless of the actions occurring on screen on a typical mid-range CPU. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. John. Man, I, I would like some way to massively speed up asset generation for for these teams making all this stuff find a way to but not like take away jobs but i don't know that it, it just feels like this it takes so much time and effort and money to to just generate stuff at this point right but if there was a way to improve the the, the speed of that i don't know is, how isn't that what epic's doing yeah but epic has armies of people doing that stuff anyway right like they, <laughs> they employ tons of people like people working on metahumans for instance there's there's people whose job is to just make clothes for the metahumans and will every game studio use it probably not maybe for some things who knows but you know yeah they, they are trying to they are trying to further that concept of building a library of objects but i don't know if we've seen that actually I don't know. Maybe there's a future there. At least for smaller projects, it does seem to be happening more and more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, my input onto this is fairly straightforward, right? In uh, for a console game, for example, um, you can't just release a console game. It has to be put through um, the technical requirements checklist of the platform holders. And you know, if there are crash bugs within a game, it shouldn't actually make its way to users. Obviously, there have been examples in the past where that has happened. Mm -hmm. uh, the most egregious one being uh, Cyberpunk 2077 back in the day, where it seemed to be the case that Microsoft and Sony essentially waved it through. Um, the technical requirements side of things, I think, is is actually really important. But I think that at this point, there has to be a technical QA pass, and it has to be done somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, this is going to cost money, and it, I think it has to happen within the platform holder as part of that technical requirements thing. Uh, I don't know how you would implement it, and I think the problem is that a lot of the issues would need to be flagged very early on in order to you know to address foundational issues mm -hmm. uh, that are causing stuff like stuttering but maybe there are stuff there is stuff you know like um you know traversal stutter and whatnot that could be brought up or or recommendations made at an early point in the game's development but what we're seeing at the moment is essentially games that are coming out that are not finished and there seem to be sort of uh almost knuckle-headed gotchas that are making their way into shipping code that should never be there. And we've got to ask the question why, and you know, it's, it should be addressed before it reaches the user. I think that's the, that's the bottom line. It, it seems to be a relatively recent mm. phenomenon overall, which suggests it's a resources or, and or time management thing. But, you know, something's got to give because, you know, as we explained earlier, the first impression of a game is of crucial importance. And if your game comes out with key technical issues, that will haunt the game for years to come. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my uh, okay, Rich. somewhat sober analysis of that particular question. <laughs> that was the final question, I think. Yeah. But uh, one more thing that just occurred to me. 
We've been is talking. This a, about, is this a one more thing, like a Tim is, Cook thing, which is absolutely amazing, or is it actually? No, it's, be... it's more like a what happened to this thing kind of okay. kind of segment. We've been talking about Steam Deck, portable PCs for a while, but do you remember the Smack Z? No. Remember the Smack Z? No. <laughs> it was. Um, it was. It was actually pretty much what the Steam Deck. It was is exactly the, like the Steam with the Deck. components of the time. Yeah, and it did. It never came out, right? So I actually used one before, and it just occurred to me. But I actually went to their website, and it hasn't received any updates since 2019. But you can still <laughs> go on there and reserve your Smack Z, and for 699 euros, you can get one with four gigabytes of RAM, 64 gigabytes of storage. Wow! All the way up to the Smack Z Ultra, which has 16 gigs of RAM, 256 gigs of storage, for over a thousand bucks. Wow. And you can also buy a Smack Z t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess it never came out. It just kind of came and went, disappeared, and that's it. It's, uh, yeah. Well, can I, can I buy the t-shirt? Or, or do I have to wait until the Smack Z comes out? <gasps> well, okay. When I click on t-shirt, it says expected to ship during 2020. Oh no! So, so I'm not sure what would happen. I I kind of want a Smack Z T-shirt. Now. Do you think we could get our merchandising uh, team to make a Smack Z T-shirt? Would... DF approved. <laughs> the Smack Z. Oh, man, brilliant! Well, that was kind of random. It was random. I just you know we've been talking about all the Steam Deck stuff. And I was like, wait a minute! I played something like that, the Smack Z, and looking at it, if you look at the size of it, it looks. It's exactly the same size as a Steam Deck, except for it has the, if you remember, the Steam controller. It has two of those big Steam controller, like, touch pads on it. Like the deck. Yeah. So, wow. no, but they're, like, circular. Oh, the circular one. Yeah, The yeah. circular one, like the Steam controller. So, well, man. in uh, I, I shall finish with some handheld news because I have just received, and oh, it oh, is oh. in my hands right now, the Aeneo 2S, which is essentially using Whoa. the same processor as the Asus VOG Ally. And um, I'm looking forward to testing it. Um, and first impressions suggest it's kind of like a, a ROG Ally where I kind of expected the performance that the ROG Ally should have had. Uh, and also, yes, just some really weird stuff happening with ROG Ally yeah. at the moment, uh, where nice. it seems that the latest BIOS that's come out has reduced performance by between 20 to 33%, which is another example, that's I think, insane. of the point I'm trying to make about technical quality assurance. That you know, it's not just the games space where there are issues; it's the hardware space. Yeah. It's just absolutely baffling the way products are. You know, high-profile products, which has obviously had massive production budgets, falling down at the final hurdle. It's kind of baffling yeah. to me. But anyway, that's the end of DF Direct Weekly number 116, and I thank you for watching it uh, all the way to the end, no less. So if you did like it, please do, well, press the like button, share, uh, bell ringing, instant notifications. This week's notification update, no notifications whatsoever, but I am ge I'm getting non-instant notifications from the DF channel. That's good. So I'm getting, I'm getting your content, your recent directs are coming up maybe, I don't know, eight to <laughs> ten hours later. <laughs> Um, but the DF supporter program won't let you down. Early access to this very show, chance to contribute, tons, tons of um, early access, behind the scenes materials. And uh, yes, yeah, just generally a great thing. So please support us. But that's all from us for this week. Thanks for watching. <laughs>